0: Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and add free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content.
1: It's, I mean, you know, I never
0: thought that
1: Elon Musk would make rockets like this. You know yeah, that yeah. we would actually get the the bullet nose shiny you know spacecraft made of you know aluminum or steel or whatever he's using now brushed steel is it? and yeah. uh, but but when I was reading Heinlein when I was a kid it was like some crazy billionaire you know millionaire back then you know finances this these plucky scientists to build this, a rocket to the moon and now we got that I never thought that would happen.
0: There's a moment right at the beginning of this conversation today where I kind of lost the ability to speak coherently. You'll hear it in a minute, but when I asked today's guest to talk about his background, he went on to list all the TV shows that he wrote for, and it's basically like every science fiction series I watch from maybe age 15 to 30. And I had no idea where to begin with that. So even though we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, I feel like we only got to like a fraction of the questions that I had come to my mind regarding all the shows that he worked on. So Mark Scott Zickrey is a science fiction writer, but he's also a sci-fi expert who sort of made his name by writing the quintessential guide to the original Twilight Zone series and who has established himself as the go-to guy for, for anything Star Trek, probably because he worked as a writer on multiple Star Trek series. These days, he's a YouTuber by the name of Mr. Sci-Fi, because all roads lead to YouTube. And he's crowdfunded his own series called Space Command, which he's currently filming. And I was happy to talk to him, because as a storyteller myself, I'm fascinated by the process, and it's always, you know, just fun to talk shop. But I won't spend a lot of time talking about what we talked about. How about I let you listen to it for yourself? So with that, here is my conversation with Mark Scott Zickry. Well, I kind of wanted to start with a bit of an apology, because you, you reached out to me, and... Um, 90% of the time, I'm just trying to get the next video out, you know, and yes. I'm, I'm just like, got my head down. <laughs> and uh, so I get approached by a lot of people for a lot of things, as you can probably imagine. And yeah, and I saw yours, and I looked you up. And I was like, that's really cool. But I don't, didn't really know what to do with it right now. So I don't even remember if I responded. I probably didn't, because that's I'm, I'm a, I'm a jackass. But um, no. anyway, no, so uh, not too long ago, I had just started doing this podcast.
1: Yeah.
0: And um. There's a channel, and I don't think I'm subscribed to it, but YouTube kind of keeps sending me their videos. Yeah, uh, Film Courage, mm, yeah. and your interview with them popped up, and I was like, "Wait, oh, we do not know that guy?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then I, I kind of like uh, realized, "Oh, he'd be a, he'd be a good guest for this." So yeah, here we are.
1: So well, sorry great. It took so long. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here because, um, I, I, sincerely, I do love, love your videos. I actually watch them. I know that you just had that little thing on your face removed and all of that. And so actually, you have new equipment. I'm, I'm paying attention. Uh-oh. And, uh, and I, I love your, I love what you do because you're a funny and the jokes actually are funny and, uh, and, and be the science stuff is great. I mean, just, you know, your, your whole, your whole approach to all of this is terrific because it's irreverent, but scientifically accurate. And in these times of, uh, you know, uh, humor and craziness, um, mm. I think, I think you really are important in terms of what you're doing. So, um so it's well, great. It's great. Nice. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. No, but I, it's I great try to be that. as
0: accurate as possible. Yeah. And again, I hit miss the mark from time to time, but no,
1: but, but it's, so it's, you know, one thing that science fiction never predicted, you know, all these movies and TV shows about pandemics and so forth, they never predicted that, that a large number of people would just not believe the science not believe you know that 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 politicians for their own self-interest would yeah. misadvise the public so that their own voter base would be dying off it's just it's just lunacy and um you know and 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 so there's there's ways in which science fiction could never guess the um oddities and extreme things happening now so uh so it's, it's yeah. fascinating. For a science fiction writer, it's grist it's, it's for the mill, of course.
0: <laughs> well, no, I've seen all the, the posts that are like, you know, uh, all the zombie movies had it totally wrong. It turns <laughs> yes. out people are just like, oh, no, come on. It's, uh, there's no zombies out there. And then munch, That's munch, right. munch, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Well I, well, I tell
1: people that, you know, people often ask me what I think the most um, predictive and accurate science yeah. fiction movies are, predictive of the future we actually have. And I always say, my, I think the two most accurate ones are idiocracy and don't look up
0: <laughs> yeah yeah don't look up's yeah. come up a lot lately yeah 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 so but uh but Mike but no. judge always said that he uh he didn't realize he was making a documentary yes or or people thought that like that would be 50 years at least in the future <laughs> that some, you know
1: yeah really start to see yeah that. but you know but, but life is fascinating so um you know <laughs> really interesting times
0: yeah well tell me about your your uh your background you wrote some some science fiction uh tv shows right yep well my background basically was
1: um grew up here in la and uh when i was 10 star trek debuted and that was like i always say some people have heroin i i had star trek and uh (laughs) i and it was before vcr so i actually recorded each episode on reel to reel audio tape in case the show never aired again oh my god and uh and I was being raised by a single mom, and one of her boyfriends was a comedian who, who was in showbiz, and he got, he said, get in the car uh, one day, and he said, I have a surprise for you, and he took me to Michelle Ch- Nichols' apartment. And I met Michelle Nichols while Star Trek was on the air, wow. and uh, she signed a photo to me and gave me these scripts uh, that were her scripts of Star Trek, and later on, I got to go to the, the Star Trek set for the last episode they ever shot, Turnabout Intruder, and It just set me to thinking about how much I'd like to be a writer, producer, working in TV, particularly in science fiction, because I was a science fiction kid. And um, when I grew up, I I got my degree in painting, sculpture and graphic arts at UCLA because I was wondering if I'd be an artist or a writer. But then at 19, I sold my first short, short story. I went to the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop and sold my first short story. And uh, I, I knew then I would be a writer. And by the and I got out of college, started writing the Twilight Zone companion to educate myself as to how great television was made, so I could make my own. Mm. And um, so I'm also the world's expert on the Twilight Zone, oddly enough. And um, uh, which is better than being, you know, the uh, sci- world's expert on bratwurst or something, you know. And uh, well, yeah, exactly. Somebody out there. there
0: is the world's foremost expert on bratwurst.
1: That's right. The road not taken. And uh, <laughs> so. Um, so by the time, so I started writing the twilight zone companion when I was 21 or 22 and, uh, a friend of mine was writing for animation and he asked me if I'd like to come into TV and write animation with him. And I thought that's my, my ticket in. So when I was 22 or 23, I was writing for, uh, you know, animation and I was writing for Smurfs and He-Man and super friends and real no ghostbusters way. and the oh, littles and all these, all these great shows. And, uh, and then, and then eventually, um, after a few years of doing that and re- becoming the god of, of animation uh, and learning my craft that way, um, I, uh, I jumped over to live action, developed Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, and then um, was writing, was story editing Friday the 13th series and writing for Sliders and Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, on and on and on and on and on and uh, And that's been my life. And uh, so for the last several decades, that's what I did. I would always, I would all, my main art form was television. I love TV and, um, because you can reach a mass audience and, um, and then I would also write books periodically. I wrote a book with Guillermo del Toro not long ago and, uh, and novels and so forth. And,
0: you know, and it just... You're just casually throwing out all of this, like crazy stuff about like working for <laughs> Star Trek and uh, a book with Guillermo del Toro. It's just like, I'm just in here like, oh my God, any one <laughs> of those things would be amazing. Yeah. It's a dream come true. It's, I mean, the fascinating thing is
1: that, um, you know, I was, uh, I grew up reading, reading science fiction, as you can tell from these books behind me. <laughs> and uh, and and i luckily in science fiction the, the your heroes go to the science fiction conventions and so when i was a teenager i started going to these conventions and meeting ray bradbury and harlan ellison and theodore sturgeon and all these guys who were not only writing for the shows i loved twilight zone outer limits star trek but also writing the books i loved mm-hmm. and um they became friends and mentors and uh and so it was terrific and um so i uh, you know i've been very very blessed and uh, mm-hmm. and then more recently you know, um, for, like 29 years ago, I I started a round table for writers and directors and actors and producers just to create a compassionate Hollywood. And uh, it grew from six people to several thousand uh, mm-hmm. all around the world with ostrich all across the country. And um, uh, it's called The Table. And um, I started hearing about crowdfunding. And I had this idea for a show that would be um, forward looking and would basically say we can create a future worth living in if we just reach across boundaries and barriers. And um, like Star Trek had inspired me. I didn't want to do something nihilistic or, uh, or dark. And, um, and so I thought instead of going to the networks and studios where they, they might cut me off at pilot or cut me out for script, I'll reach out to my fans and see if, uh, if they respond. And they did via crowdfunding and selling investment shares in Space Command, which is the project. Um, my fans have given me to date over $3 million, and that allowed me to open a studio. And we have shot the first five hours of Space Command. In fact, we were shooting uh, the sixth hour, some of the sixth hour this past weekend. And I have my own studio and I can do basically whatever I want. My Dude, my wife great. and I write and produce and direct together. So it's dream
0: come true. Wow. So how's that going? Um, the production Correct. of space command. I mean, let's see, let's hear about it, that. Or if you can, if you can talk about yeah, it. Yeah, No, I'm it's asking awesome. anything.
1: I, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's going great. Um, you know, I'm the only writer who wrote for both deep space nine and Babylon five and, uh, uh and uh basically the way both shows worked is you had, you had what are called standing sets your basic set sets and with babylon 5 all of their exteriors were computer generated they never went anywhere they stayed in the building the teamsters didn't even find them until year three and you know <laughs> and so you know and then they had to negotiate with the teamsters but um uh so i thought and when i was on the star trek set when i was a kid you know, to be able to sit in the captain's chair and look up at the transporter and see the little light bulb that was screwed in and, and you know, just see all that amazing stuff. And uh, so, I, um, a few years ago, I directed an episode of Star Trek New Voyages, which was a fan production. And we shot with George Decay, and it got nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula, which was the two top awards in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And it gave, and I saw that what was happening with the advent of technology uh, that you could edit on a mac you know or a pc you you have the internet as a distribution network that could reach millions of people and um and fans all around the world were learning production you know we're learning how to shoot stuff and edit yeah. stuff and do visual effects and all of this and fans were now making productions their own productions that were approaching the quality of network shows and i saw that there was a great opportunity that people from my world were not exploiting were not utilizing and um because everything I'd done prior to space command was finance was I was working for the studios and the networks. I worked for basically all of them, all the major ones. And, uh, but when I, when I came up with space command, I thought, let's see if I can open my own studio, build my own sets. And I invited my friends to be in it. So it was like Doug Jones and Robert Picardo and Mira Furlan and Bill Mooney and on and on. I mean, all these people from Star Trek and Babylon five and so forth that I'd worked with. And, um, you know, Doug Jones is in Star Trek Discovery now, and uh, they all said yes. And and so I basically write with along with my wife Elaine. Well, you know, I write it, direct it, produce it. You no, know, you know, I'm the buck stops with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're is, talking. Is that is that, that
0: freeing or is that? Um, it seems like it could be a lot of pressure. No, no, it's fun. It's super fun. It's uh, it's really, really. I
1: I, I mean, i I'll, I'll I'll walk you through some of this stuff. But mm-hmm. now but now we're talking to Netflix and Amazon and all those guys to see if anyone wants to partner with us. Uh, we've written the full season of space command and our goal this year is to shoot, you know, we shot five hours. We're going to shoot the rest of the first season plus, and what, what my, my whole thing, my entire career has been to set an impossible goal and then achieve it and then set something bigger. And, uh, so off of space command, uh, which has now been seen by over 3 million people on, on Mr. Sci-Fi, my YouTube channel. Um, I, uh, I came up with something called the Showrunners Network, where I'm creating a, a slate of six science fiction shows. Uh, Space Command is one of them. With And my collaborators are some of the creators of the greatest science fiction shows ever. So I'm creating a show with Rockmeel Bannon, who created Farscape and Alien Nation and Sequest and Defiance. He's on the show Evil now as an executive producer. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Ferguson, Hawk Ospier are creating another show with me. They created The Expanse and wrote Children of Men and, and Iron Man. Um, I'm doing a new Rod Serling series where I'm talking to to Rod's family about that and and his, and the agent and, um, and, and, and so forth, you know, and, and, um, it's great fun. And the idea is that we'll shoot the pilots, uh, take them out to the buyers as a slate and see if we can reinvent how television is made, you know, change the paradigm and Mm -hmm. put it in the hands of the creators. And, uh, you know, and so that's huge fun. And, uh, you know, so yeah. I it's um you know I have no complaints. Every day's Christmas.
0: <laughs> so wow, I don't I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I want to relay a little bit of a story. Um, it, you, you got far more than I do, clearly. But um, okay. So I went to film school, made a movie back in the early aughts and whatnot, yeah. and um, a couple of friends of mine that I went to film school with here in in uh, North Texas. Went off to L.A., started kind of getting uh, work with the studios and whatnot. Um, One of them, uh, now he edits TV shows and and that kind of deal. Um, But anyway, when I started getting early on in YouTube, first of all, (laughs) it was very difficult for me to let go of the film thing. Because for Mm, me, it was like everything was movies, movies, movies and YouTube. You (laughs) know, to this day, I still kind of shirk when people congratulate me a little bit too much for the YouTube thing. Cause I still feel like, but I was aiming over here and I landed mm-hmm. here and this is great, but I was aiming yeah. over there. So it still feels like a bit of a, I hate to use the word failure. Cause that's not the right word, but <laughs> no. you know, like I, I hit the wrong mark it yes. feels like that sometimes, but anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm going out to VidCon at Anaheim, Anaheim and uh, i sit down and have a drink with that friend of mine that's editing TV shows and stuff. And I'm super proud of him. I can't believe he's getting mm-hmm. to do this stuff, you know, and, and we're sitting there talking and I was kind of, I don't know, making fun of myself because I'm doing YouTube like a 13 year old or something. And, um, and he was like, no, no, you're at the Vanguard. Yeah. And I was like, oh, pff, come on. You know, I, I thought he was just being nice. He was like, no, 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 that's where everything's going. Yes. He said, you're, you're positioning yourself in a really good place. And I was kind of like, and it just kind of stuck in my head. I walked away like, what, really? And everything that you're talking about right there is it gets me excited because it's almost like a mixture of those two worlds. It's yes, it's if you want to call YouTube social media, but like online content, whatever. Yes. Mixed with the traditional studio kind of thing and, and making traditional TV shows and stuff. You're kind of you're kind of bridging that gap, which I think is really interesting.
1: Well, what's what's really unusual is that someone someone from my world usually isn't at the forefront of the new medium. Mm-hmm. And but beca- I think it's change, part of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, part of it is because I'm I'm a historian of television. I, you know, in writing The Twilight Zone book, when I was in my early 20s, I really got to study how TV grew and developed and mm-hmm. and the and the, the arc of that. And, and, you know, I tell people that my favorite network is YouTube. Because when I was writing The Twilight Zone Companion, if you wanted to watch some TV rarity, something that Rod Serling had written in the live days of TV, you had to go to an art, to like a university archive, put a 16 millimeter print on a Moviola and watch it on a yeah. screen about as big as an as a, you know, uh, yeah. iPhone. Yeah. And, uh, and now you just type that into YouTube and there it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, holy cow. And uh, you know, so I, I, I love the new medium. I mean, when I started in television, you, you, you were shooting on 35 millimeter. You, it was two days before you could even see your dailies. There right. was no video assist. So you couldn't even tell if you would gotten the shot you needed. It and was out
0: of um, focus the entire time. Yes.
1: And, if you, want, and yeah. if you wanted to reach an audience of millions, you needed a studio or network or a major publisher because there was no alternative. It was too right. expensive. And now... Um, that's none of that is the case. And, you know, I, I mentioned just before we started that I've, I've written a new, a new book called Greenlighting Yourself. And the whole idea is because through my roundtable that I run so many young writers and directors and actors and producers are going, well, I, I can't have my dream because the studios won't let me. They won't buy my script. They won't blah, 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 blah. And mm-hmm. I say, no, there's, you know, one thing science fiction never predicted was that we would all carry video cameras in our pockets. Right. and. And so there's really no excuse. And you know, and, and and you know, when I say that Joe that you're one of my heroes, it's it's not bullshit. It's like I love watching your videos. You 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 have a personality that it comes across and it's it's utterly charming and, and engaging, and what you're interested in is so fascinating, and you articulate it so well and and you're funny. And um so so I think the the I so I guess the message is bloom where you're planted, I guess, you know, mm. because you have. But you know, but it's like, you know, for me, I didn't know if this would work, but it is working. And but I but I have to be very very inventive. And 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 in the book, I say that that the key to success is um, confidence mixed with humility. Confidence allows you to get where you're going. Humility allows you to continue learning along the way. Mm. And um, so, but I, and I'm not. I'm uh, you know one of the things that allows me to do what I do. Well, for instance. Uh when i wrote when i wrote the pilot of space command i knew the two-hour pilot i knew that i was going to be casting a lot of very famous actors who had uh fan followings from all these different shows they'd done mm-hmm. uh so i had this crazy idea which was since the world was financing me i thought i remember the great talent search uh for scarlett o'hara back in gone with the wind 1939 and i thought a lot of Kickstarter campaigns have well the they'll, they'll promise like a like a, a little walk on role or a cameo mm-hmm. or you know maybe one line, and I thought no let's have a let's have a worldwide talent search where anyone anywhere can audition for two of the lead roles, okay? So they could download the audition scenes, record their own audition, and they would be seriously considered for the two lead roles: Captain Cameron, and Cadet Bradbury, and uh, so we got seven thousand inquiries. 1200 video auditions and we ended up casting, I think six actors out of that. Mm-hmm. And they, there are leads. I mean, one of them, in fact, we were just shooting with on this weekend. And now one of our actors is, is a recurring role on walking daddy, just came off doom patrol. And, and um, Christina Moses, who I cast to play Sulu's daughter in the Star Trek episode I did is now on um, a million little things on ABC. So I don't see YouTube or crowdfunding or any of these things as separate from the studios and the networks. My life is extremely permeable in that way. And, um, you know, so um, I I just, my goal is what I learned from Star Trek when I was a kid is that one hour of TV or even one half hour with Twilight Zone can change someone's life forever for the good. And so I take that responsibility very seriously. So my journey in this life is just to take something from my heart and share with the world.
0: I'll get you back to Mr. Sci-Fi in just a minute, but if you're a fan of science fiction, you might be familiar with the works of Philip K. Dick. He was the author of books like The Man in the High Castle, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and A Scanner Darkly. And his works have influenced movies like Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report, and, well, really an entire generation of science fiction. And you can learn all about his life and career in the film The Worlds of Philip K. Dick on Stream. It examines his works through the lens of his lived experience, and how his books and hundreds of short stories have influenced literature, and the way we think about technology in general. If you love you some dystopia, this is right up your alley. Of course, this is just one of hundreds of films and video series on Curiosity Stream that explore topics that tickle your nerd bone. With everything from compelling programs from some of the best documentary filmmakers in the world, all in one place, it's your go-to spot to nerd out on pretty much any topic that crosses your mind. But here's the thing. When you sign up with CuriosityStream, you also get Nebula, which is another amazing streaming platform made by YouTube creators like myself for fans of educational YouTube content like myself. It's where you can watch videos totally ad-free and also see exclusive series that we couldn't monetize on YouTube. It's kind of our little place to experiment and do cool stuff without having to be beholden to the algorithm. Like my original series, Mysteries of the Human Body, where I talk about the body that you currently inhabit and, well... Everything that can go wrong with it, but, you know, in a funny way. Yeah, we cover unexplained diseases and plagues throughout history, human oddities, and the mysteries of why we age and die. And you can get both of these amazing platforms for only fourteen seventy nine. That's not fourteen seventy nine a month. That is for an entire year for two streaming services, which is crazy. So, yeah, to get all that, just go to CuriosityStream.com slash JoeScottPod. Again, that's curiositystream.com/joescottpod, slash and you can be rolling in that sweet, sweet nerdy goodness. So yeah, one more time, curiositystream.com/joescottpod. Go check it out, and thanks to CuriosityStream for supporting this podcast. Now back to Mark. The whole reason I started the YouTube channel, really, well, not the whole reason, but one of the big, big main reasons was, um, you know, I, I did a couple of Kickstarter campaigns for for projects that, uh, unfortunately, you know, just didn't quite happen. Yeah, and um, I got tired of asking people to help support these projects that, and I had a lot of guilt about that. To be honest, yes, yes, you know, people, people support this thing and then it never happens, and I'm just walking away. Um. So anyway, I was like, why don't I start a YouTube channel and see if I can build up an audience and then you right. know make make something for that? So, yeah, uh, I mean, if I'm being honest, I'm kind of at that point now where I'm starting to think about like how I can, yes, make that plan a reality, you know, and I've got some, some projects in the works and stuff. Well,
1: we can, we can definitely talk about that. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not as big a leap as you might think. Um, and also, by the way, here's, here's two tricks that I use that work very, very well for me. Um, I embrace unstoppability. So if I say I'm going to do something, I do it no matter how hard it is. And, uh, my my mantra to myself at various times has been, I am made of iron and nothing will stop me. Mm -hmm. And as a result, and but you have to put aside guilt and shame because, like, for instance, on the we're finishing the first two hours of Space Command now, it has 1800 visual effects shots, which is crazy. And that is a lot. And back in the first campaign we had, we I think we've had seven or eight crowdfunding campaigns over the years. The first campaign, there was a guy who put in a significant amount of money to have a speaking role in Space Command. And finally, a decade later, We finally put him on camera this weekend. (laughs) So it took a a decade and he was over the moon. He was overjoyed. It's like, Jesus Christ, I'm glad you survived. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but he was terrific. And, and so, and throughout that decade, I was thinking, oh, that poor guy, you know? And yet it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't give into that. I just had to say, I am on my journey and it may take longer than I, than I think it may be harder than I think, but. That's irrelevant, I have to just finish what I started. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been, you know, that's been my mantra and it's worked, but I, you know, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, just like so many of us are, you know, and, uh, but the good part is that, um, you know, I, uh, I'm getting to, to, you know, live my dream. It's so terrific. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, this, I mean, t- just to put it in perspective, this weekend we were shooting, we built, a hospital on a space station as our set, okay? So we have the hospital and the cafe. Now we're repurposing that set into a departure lounge on a separate space station. That space station was orbiting Jupiter. The one we'll shoot next is orbiting Earth, you know, and so you start dealing with all that stuff. Um, and, um, you know, how cool, but oh, here's the, here's the fun part. Um, <laughs> it, okay. Uh, the um, When I wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, one of the cool things about The Twilight Zone is that Rod Sterling shot it at MGM, which of course was the greatest studio of the golden age. And he had access to every prop, costume, and set MGM ever built. So you can see a million things from Forbidden Planet and Twilight Mm -hmm. Zone. And they shot on the Andy Hardy Street and Meet Me in St. Louis and on and on. So, okay. So when I was hired on sliders at Universal, we were shooting on the Universal lot. I was a producer on that show as well as a writer. And I said to them, do we have access to every prop costume and set that Universal has made? And they said, huh, no one's ever asked us that question. We'll check. And they came back and they said, yes, with a very few exceptions, you do. So we have, so we use stuff from 12 Monkeys and Time Cop and Jurassic Park and on and on, which gave us great production value. Mm, yeah. So now that I'm doing Space Command, a lot of stuff we're building, like the space, um, this our hero spaceship and all that stuff. But also I'm, I'm acquiring things my favorite thing in, in the world is science big budget science fiction movies that tanked because they put a ton of money into production design and almost no one saw them the movies. Yeah. So I've got I've bought stuff from Cloverfield Paradox set pieces, Cloverfield Paradox, um, uh, Ender's Game, um, Passengers, on and on, and that allows us to build out yeah. from what we have. Well, all these incredible. We just bought a, a, a cryopod, cryo pod, cryogenic pod, from passengers that we used this past weekend. I've got seventeen spacesuits from the some we've built from scratch and others we've 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 acquired from different movies. So, um, so I knew that that lesson from Rod, and then, um, but also when I say I'm not proud, I'm not arrogant. Um, for instance, in in my neighborhood in West Hollywood, uh, people throw out stuff a lot, like furniture and TV sets. And so I'll carry it home. I'll put it in the garage and we'll use it on this. For instance, for the departure lounge we're building for next time, um, someone threw out three matching leather, white leather chairs. And then someone else threw out a matching white leather sofa. And someone else threw out a matching white end table. And then someone, whoever had the three chairs that they threw out, threw out a fourth one that matched. So I'm going to be building the furniture for this departure lounge from all this matching white leather furniture and we'll put view screens, like like screens in the white end tables to have like commercials for inter- interplanetary space lines and <laughs> bang, you've got your set.
0: So <laughs> so ha- has there ever been, has it ever worked backwards where um, you got a piece of uh, a proper or equipment or set or something and then it was like, I could write something around this.
1: Yes, absolutely, yes, yes, Any yes. Any examples yes. of that? Oh yeah, well like it's, um, gosh, what have, what have people gotten? Well, you know, even, even the sleep pod um, that I saw in passengers that was available. I, you know, I thought, okay, I can, I can utilize that, but you know, it's just, yes, absolutely. It feeds into everything, feeds into everything else. For instance, the departure lounge, one of the fun things I I like having little Easter eggs relating to the history of science fiction. Uh So I've been acquiring uh, either costumes that were made or duplicates of those costumes from forbidden planet, fifth element, you know, um, all this different stuff. And so in the departure lounge, I'm going to have people walking by in the background in these costumes from Starship Troopers and all these different movies. And and the fans, of course, will say, holy cow, I know what that is. Um, you know, even even from Space Patrol, which was, a show, in, a live TV show in the fifties that in, that inspired me. You know, um, I didn't I I didn't see it when it first ran, but I saw kinescopes of it later, and uh, and met the star of that show, Ed Cameron. So I named Captain Cameron Space Command after Ed Cameron, who starred in Space Patrol in nineteen in the nineteen fifties. And um, but yes, everything is grist for the mill. Mm-hmm. Everything is like uh, you know, it's uh, it's fascinating. And then one person who popped up is this actress from Russia named Tatiana. And uh, she was on the shoot this past weekend. She's going to be a recurring actor in Space Command. And uh, and I name all of the Space Command characters, at least who are in Space Command, in the service of Space Command, um, uh, after classic science fiction writers. So we've got Bradbury, Le Guin, Simak, you know, et cetera. Mm. And, and if they're foreign actors, then I have to find a science fiction writer from that country. So for instance, with Tatiana, I, I remember the Strugatsky brothers who wrote Uh, Roadside Picnic. And uh, so she's Tatiana Stugatsky. That's the character's name. So, you know, it's fun. It's just fun. But uh, but yeah, everything shows up one way or another. You know, it's, Mm. uh, you know, it's, well, like when I was a kid, my mom uh, bought me a spacesuit and uh, uh, this Western costume, which provides costumes to the movies and TV shows, had a sale that was open to the public when I was 12. And Mm. one of the things they were selling was a real spacesuit. It was a Navy high altitude suit it was used in *Twilight Zone* and, and other productions, and my mom bought it for me. It was twenty-five dollars, and uh, so my cameo in *Space Command* is um, there's this crash landing that's very elaborate, and there's a guy at a terraforming station on Mars watching this thing happen, and he says, "Wow," and that's me in that spacesuit. So,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so,
1: so I wrote that because I knew I would be in that spacesuit for that that moment. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, and my dad, my dad bought a, bought, um, built a replica replica bugatti car and that's in space space command as well so i sure. use whatever i can i have yeah. and it's fun to be inventive you know it's just fun to yeah. figure out ways to make make this this machine go
0: that's really cool can i step back though yeah um talking about when you were a kid and you got to go meet uh uh michelle nichols michelle nichols sorry yeah sorry. um so, so growing up in, in LA and yes. having access to that kind of thing. Yes. Um, I'm always fascinated by those, those little things when you're a kid that wind up shaping you as you get older, you know? Yes. Um, yes. I, I talk endlessly about how I grew up in a small podunk town in Texas and whatnot. Um, and obviously I didn't have access to anything like that, you know? yeah. And I think yeah, yeah. that there's something about like, I'm kind of going a little tangent for just a second, but no, please, you know if if you are brought up in a family where both of your parents went to college, mm. then you going to college is not like a big deal. It's kind of expected. Yes. like it's just because that's what your parents did, you see it. You grow up seeing it. It's something that you know people can do, so you go do mm-hmm. it. yeah, um, and I think people that grow up around the film industry, see being in film is like it's it's a thing that you can do because i know mm. so-and-so's dad is in it and this guy over here does it you know and it, it's just it just kind of lowers that mental barrier i guess you know mm, whereas yes. if you grew up in the midwest and you had no access to anything like that it just seems like this impossible dream yes you know? um, yes so i'm just kind of curious about like growing up around it like um i mean you told those stories a second ago but yeah um how, how did it how did it shape you not just toward like doing sci-fi and that kind of thing yeah yeah i think that it did kind of plant a seed like this is a thing that can be done i know people that yes. do it and i can do it too you know well the book the
1: book that changed my life is right here <laughs> making of star trek and okay. uh thanks to this wonderful uh website called uh ebay
0: <laughs> i was able
1: to to read electronic a- bay this is a copy that was actually signed by Gene Roddenberry and Majel Barrett and, and other Star Trek luminaries. And so when it was put up for sale, because I, you know, I bought my own copy when I was 13 when this came out, um, I, I emailed the person and said, well, what's the provenance on this? How do I know that that signature is authentic? So she said, well, this was my mom's copy. And here's a photo of her on the set of Star Trek with Leonard Nimoy. Now, <laughs> <if you're> enough, <laughs> he's giving now, her
0: the pinch. <laughs>
1: right. Now, if you're enough of a geek, a Star Trek geek, you know that that episode is Spock's brain because of the costume he's wearing. <laughs> so, But I read this book when I was 13, and it was the first book I ever read on how television was made. Okay. And because I had no notion because my family was not in show business. I mean, my mom. Okay, had yeah, I was boys, wondering about that. Yeah. My mom had one boyfriend who was a former Borscht comedian and, you know, he was lining up the prizes for the dating game and the newlywed game when my mom was dating him. He's the one who took me to Nichelle Nichols' house. And, uh, but the great, but the great part I didn't mention about that was just before the pandemic, we shot a space command scene with Nichelle Nichols and we went to her house and I brought the Star Trek album that I, I have a Star Trek album of clippings from Star Trek that I kept when I was 10. And it included the letter she would written me and the photo she had signed to me. Aww. And I brought that on the day that I directed her in that scene for Space Command and, and 50 years later, right? Um. And that was just a dream come true. But- How did she um, react? She was floored. She was so <laughs> moved. And we sat looking through the scrapbook with all the articles about her from 1968. Yeah. And uh, it, was just, it was just a dream come true. It was wonderful. And, uh, you know, but again, you know, these people are such heroes to me and such, uh, I mean, it's just magical, you know, it's like, it really is like, like living in Oz, you know, being able to do all this stuff and except without, you know, the Wicked Witch and, uh, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, but in terms to answer your question, it, it was never a sure thing that I would succeed, you know, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with my dad being Steven Spielberg or something, you know, sure. and, um I just kind of, so a lot of, a lot of my career has been trying to figure out, okay, how does this work? That's why I wrote Green Lighting Yourself, because a lot of people have the passion and they have the heart and they probably have the talent, but they just, it's just like, you know, because a lot of the common wisdom about, about how you break into Hollywood is total bullshit. It's like, well, just write a great script. Well, you watch TV and movies. How many of those are great? Clearly, yeah, a lot yeah, of really yeah. shitty scripts are getting made. Yeah. So, so clearly, those people didn't write a great script. They, they had some other way to make that happen.
0: And, and, um, and can I say, as somebody who wanted to be a screenwriter all my life, that was a very frustrating thing to be told. Yes. Is that, oh, You just yes. got to write a great script. It's like, well, I can write the best script in the world, but if it ever leaves my desk, then right. you know, there's, that, there's clearly uh, I, something else involved.
1: Well, when I mentor young people about, who have just come to Hollywood, I say the first piece of equipment you have to buy when you get to Hollywood is a bullshit detector. <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh but when i was very young i said i said uh i i knew um i met uh charles joffie he was woody allen's agent and then his producer and i said charlie until in, in film and tv where's the power and he said in film it's the director or 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 the writer director hyphen it uh in tv it's the writer executive producer hyphen at the showrunner. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, because directors run basically run movies and TVs run by the writers. And that was thanks to Rod Serling. And he was really the first modern showrunner. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to be in TV. I'm going to fit I, I've written features on assignment and stuff, but TV's always been my main thing mm-hmm. because the writers run it. And I have that I have power.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I have power. But um but so in, but but I think yes, you're right. The the growing up here in Hollywood, I mean, you know, you you would you would you know find you would it was it was a, it's a company town, mm-hmm. and so it is very much, uh, you know, sort of in the DNA of the town. Uh, when I was 13, my mom worked uh, doing PR for a driving school, and they gave her a company car, which was a driving school car with the light on top and the two steering wheels and the dual oh, yeah. uh, brakes yes. and things and Mannix, which was a TV show that when they were doing at, at, uh, at, at Paramount at the time, had, a, had an episode where a blind person sees a murder. I you know that they're present to a murder and, and Mannix has to convince the killer that this person can see, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have this gag where the person's driving a car and it's a dual driving car and Mannix has his coat over he's really driving but the person's in the driving seat. So they actually took my mother's car and redressed it to be that car in Mannix. so hmm. so even though I didn't grow up with anyone in my family in in showbiz, um, it was still very much kind of like okay, well my mom's car is in Mannix this week. Yeah, you know? you're
0: adjacent to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. but if I hadn't met my friend Michael Reeves, who brought me into because uh, I took Theodore Sturgeon's right. Okay, a big part of <laughs> a big part of making making it in Hollywood or and when I say Hollywood, I mean world media i think of you as as much a part of hollywood as me quite frankly because you're a you're by by my lights you're a tv star frankly and you know again i because i don't there's only one rule of of hollywood in and i mean the world entertainment industry which is to entertain Mm. and you do that You, you do that superlatively well and um so i don't i don't differentiate between what you're doing and what JJ Abrams is doing or or or, or Guillermo del Toro. Um, I,
0: I have thought about shooting in anamorphic.
1: Yes. <laughs> I think that would incre- I, I greatly- need some lens
0: flares across my yes, face
1: when I'm yes, recording. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And my uh JJ Abrams but, joke Well, that's that's why I switched up to Guillermo cuz you know, he's less of a <laughs> you know, <problematical>, uh <laughs> creative spirit. And uh but yes, but the thing is, um you know, I it's it's a, it's all about, you know, entertaining people that's really what this this business is you know you have to entertain people and then you can educate them and all that but first you entertain them that's why you're funny and that's why that leads people in that's your gateway drug humor is your gateway drug to like (laughs) you know enlightening people you know because someone who doesn't well yeah because someone who doesn't necessarily care about the ice shelf falling into the sea will say well let's see what he says that makes me laugh today Mm -hmm. you know and then they have a little bit of a chuckle and maybe they learn something hopefully but um but when I was a teenager, after I sold my first short story, I came back to finish my two years of art school at UCLA, oh. and uh, Theodore Sturgeon, the great Theodore Sturgeon, was teaching a writing class in the adult education department of UCLA, and as an undergrad, I was forbidden from taking the adult education classes, mm-hmm. but Ted had written for Star Trek, he, he'd written wonderful books and short stories, and so I said, well, hell with that, I'm not going to let that rule stop me, so I enrolled in his class. And his teaching assistant was a young writer named Michael Reeves who had gone to Clarion uh, three years before I had. And we became friends. And he's the one who's been writing for animation and, and brought me in to write for Space Ghost and then Smurfs. And then I could write on my own as well. And off I off I went. Mm-hmm. But, um, but if not for that, I might never have broken into TV. It might not have worked. You know, that's, it really does. <sighs> the fascinating thing about life is that there are always things that are, in your control and things that are out of your control yeah and all you can do is do your work and hope that you know you catch a catch a break here and there you know so well
0: that's um, kind of where i was starting that whole uh conversation just the the little tipping points along the way yeah even if it's just like a little influence when you're a kid or the person that you meet randomly at a you know party or something that up you know changing your life it's that's it's a fascinating thing to think about Yes,
1: but one thing, one thing that served me very, very well is that, as I said earlier, science fiction is amazingly inclusive. Like, like if you said, I want to meet Brad Pitt, good luck. <laughs> but if you, said, if you said, you know, I want to meet, you know, insert, insert science fiction writer name or, or science fiction actor name here, you know, whoever's your hero, you could go to a science fiction convention, particularly when it's not a pandemic, and meet your heroes. And that can lead to great things. And if I've done one thing right in my career, I've found, I've chosen mentors who were doing what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah.
1: And whether it was Theodore Sturgeon or and Serling, you know, Rod Serling passed away two years before I wrote the book or started the book, but but I learned from him because I, his widow Carol gave me access to everything and uh, all of his stuff, and um, and I got to meet and become friends with many of the people who did Twilight Zone, and that was. Wonderful, you know. So mm-hmm. I choose mentors who, who I want to learn from, and that that helps a lot.
0: Yeah. What do you think it is that that science fiction lends itself to the whole convention thing? Like, why why don't why not why don't other genres have that?
1: Uh, yeah, or do yeah. they? I
0: just don't know about it. It's because
1: science fiction began, you know. I mean, HG Wells and Jules Verne are the fathers of science fiction, particularly Wells and um, but science fiction fandom started in the early years of the 20th century with amazing stories and Hugo Gernsback. The Hugo's named after Hugo Gernsback, the editor mm-hmm. of that magazine. And so the whole there was a whole generation of kids who were the science fiction fans of that era. And they grew up to be Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in the last 10 years of his life, Ray was a very dear friend and mentor. And uh, I'd go over to his house about once a month and we'd talk about life and career and art and all of that. And he told me about going to the world's the first world science fiction convention in New York. Forrest Ackerman uh loaned him a hundred bucks so he could take take the 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 bus to New York and mm-hmm. uh you know and and Ray told me that it he he loved the convention, but they had a banquet and it was a dollar to have the food at the banquet, and he didn't have the dollar, so he oh stood God. in the back of the room for the banquet. But but that generation of fans became the writers, and yeah. so so it was very permeable. And so they didn't, the, the authors, it was all one big family. It was very collegial. And um, and and from that, you had the World Science Fiction Convention and, and so forth. And then it became, it blew up and became big once film and TV, once science fiction became the dominant moneymaker in film and TV for decades. Yeah. It was just, you know, of maybe a few thousand people at most were science fiction fans and then it Mm. then it got became mainstream with star trek and 2001 a space odyssey and so forth but it wasn't until the 60s it wasn't that wasn't the case and uh so those conventions
0: almost served as an incubator of sorts and still do that's the
1: amazing thing and still do if you want to when when people tell me they want to be science fiction writers in books i say go to the world science fiction convention and the world fantasy convention because that's where the writers and the agents and the um uh, book editors are, and they're very passionate. I say, and they're not like Hollywood people. They're really nice. You know, so, you know, they're not assholes. Um, and, uh, you know, because they have a passion for what they're doing, but they'll also, if you, if you buy them a drink, they'll actually sit down and talk with you. And they'll, you know, it's like, you know, back when Game of Thrones was such a huge thing, I said to people, well, you can't, you know, if you go to Comic-Con, you're not going to meet George R.R. R. Martin and sit down with him because he'll be mobbed everywhere he goes. But the world science fiction convention, which only gets a few thousand people, he puts on a party every year. He'll tell mm-hmm. you can, you can meet him, you can talk to him, you know, and even, and that doesn't mean he's any less of a, you know, God than he would normally be. But um, it just means he's approachable because right. he knows that he's with his family, basically the extended family of fans. That's and sure. so, and so that's why it's wonderful. And And I'm part of that too. When I go to a convention or even in this conversation, I mean, you can tell that I'm, I'm approachable. I'm not, I'm not a Hollywood, you know, weasel, you know, (laughs) and, and because I think Hollywood is so needlessly cruel and arrogant and stupid. And, and I want (laughs) to be a counterweight against that. I, you know, uh, the people who, who made me what I am were people writing from their hearts. You know, you can tell Mm. with Rod Serling, I mean, my God, he was, Incredibly passionate, and and you know when you see Rod on Twilight Zone, if you'd met him, you know he would have been that same guy. Maybe I mean he might have told you a vulgar joke or two because he had a great sense of humor. But he was that guy, very much mm-hmm. so. You know you you know.
0: I wonder if um like science fiction fans, just in general, have a bit more of an optimism to them, or a as Neil deGrasse Tyson might call a cosmic perspective, a bigger yeah. picture perspective on things. Like that, just if you're a fan of science fiction, you're just going to be you're just going to be a little bit more in that mindset maybe than the general public. Well, and you know, lends to that kind of culture you were just talking about.
1: Well, you funny. It's funny you mentioned Neil because he's in Space Command. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> he's, well, he's on he's on camera in Space Command. That's the cool. fun part. He, uh, yeah, because I I I was at the gym one day and he was there and I asked him a scientific question that I was about something I was writing. And he, he figured it out over the next few days and spent 30 minutes on the treadmill telling me what the answer was. <laughs> and I wrote, him, I wrote him in the space command. But um, I think science fiction, I think what really makes science fiction go is that we've always been the oddballs and the outcasts and the, <laughs> the super brainy kind of weirdos. I mean, you know, I never thought that Elon Musk would make rockets like this you know, that we would actually get the the bullet nose, shiny, you know, spacecraft made of, you know, aluminum or steel or whatever he's using now, brushed steel, is it? And, uh, but, but when I was reading Heinlein, when I was a kid, it was like some crazy billionaire, you know, millionaire back then, you know, finances, this, these plucky scientists to build this rocket to the moon. And now got that i never thought that would happen and but it's very clear that nasa is never going to get us to mars with manned missions because they're so dependent on the whims of government and elon musk means it he's he's he means it if we have a chance it's either going to be china or him to get there first definitely but anyway so i i i I that's the whole
0: thing yeah Um, but
1: but the point is that all the scientists and all the the, the science geeks and the hobbyists, they all kind of coalesce, you know, people who don't know science fiction fans think that we're UFO fanatics. Most science fiction fans aren't, yeah. you know, but, but they are science geeks. They're into astronomy and physics and all of that stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so it's, uh, it's just a natural marriage of, uh, of, of those, those areas, you know, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. Well, you were touching on something a second ago about, Basically, like how people in the past thought the future would look, and how sci-fi yes. from the past like predicted things and what they got right and what they got wrong. Yes, um, there's a there's a couple of references that I can throw out, and then we can talk about it because I think it's really interesting. Sure. But um, yeah, I did a video. It's kind of early on in the channel now, but um, there was the AT and T campaign from the late 80s, maybe early 90s, yes. called the U L yes. campaign. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I I loved looking back at those because. Um, there were some things that they got right, but just yeah. off. You yes, know? I like, saw that like video. A, that was great. Like the the driving through the, um, my favorite, this is my favorite one, but uh, have you ever paid a toll without stopping? And and <laughs> you still, you see, it, the guy has like a little credit card reader in his, in his car, and he's like swiping <laughs> it as he drives through. And I'm like, what? Yes. Um, so, I mean, they got it right, but yes. off a little bit. Um, yeah. Sort of on that same note, I don't know, do you watch um, Red Letter Media? No, on YouTube. No. I have to. Um, I've, I've heard them called your favorite YouTubers, favorite YouTuber, uh. and um, they're they're basically film geeks, and they they do uh, they're they're big Star Trek fans actually. Uh. Um, but uh, anyway, they they do these things called review, and this is fresh in my mind because I literally just watched this like two days ago. But they did uh-huh. one on uh, Total Recall. Wow. And and it's basically they like look at films that they watched when they were kids again, as adults, and they're, like, yes. kind of looking back and seeing if they remember it correctly and all that, and they're just, <laughs> yes. just, just two guys, two nerds talking about sci-fi stuff. <laughs> um, so, anyway, they did the one on Total Recall, and it kind of made gave me a flashback to the AT&T thing that I was just talking about. This all comes together, I promise. Yeah, um, yes, But about how, like, they had video phones, but they were, like, in, in phone booths. They were, like, stationary yes. objects. Yes. And so that made me think of the AT&T thing because they had the same thing. They had yes. kids going to a library and like connecting to a teacher in China or something. Yes. But, but, but computers are always this stationary thing that you went to. Right. And, and it's like, even AT&T did not see this coming. Right. Yes. Even they didn't see the phone, the cell phone coming and the ability to do all the stuff like what we're doing right now. You're on your phone, yeah. right?
1: It's great. It's yeah. great. We're in the future. You bet. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. But, but well, you it, know, the fun that's thing one of the is, things I... that like nobody
1: saw coming. No, no. But the funny thing is I used to say that one thing science fiction didn't predict was, pre- predict was the internet. And yeah. then I came across a short story by E.M. Forster from 1909 called The Machine Stops. And it's about this woman and she's in this little kind of, Apartment, and she just communicates through her screen, and she gives a lecture, and people all over the world watch it. And her son's on the other side of the planet, and says, "Hey, mom, I want you to come visit me." And she says, "Well, we're, we're, why should I visit you? We can talk on the screen." He says, "No, no, I want you to visit me in person." And she has to, like, you know, pull herself together and go out into, yeah. into the world. And I thought, my God, he nailed it, and he didn't even have there wasn't even the word computer. He wasn't using the terms, but it was absolutely the internet. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's fascinating. And Ian e. Forster was is generally not thought of as a science fiction writer he wrote room with a view you know and yeah so you know craziness but but yes it's fascinating one thing i one thing that was also great about being here in la was um i got to go to disneyland twice a year through my entire childhood and <laughs> and they they had when i was a, a kid they had the tomorrowland with the rocket to the moon and and ventures in Inner Space where you go inside an atom and all this incredibly cool stuff and i loved that that version of Tomorrowland, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's just, um, but it created that future, that kind of gosh, future. And when, when I created a uh, space command, my idea was to use the aesthetic of 1950s science fiction, because I wanted to do something that would make our show look different. And I, uh, and I wanted also, and I also love that aesthetic, you know, whether it's the, you know, rocket from, uh, you know, uh, when worlds collide, <laughs> you know, or or any of these other things or the book covers, you know, Ed M. Schwiller or anything, any of this kind of stuff, you know, like City, these great yeah, yeah. covers. Um, I just really wanted to draw upon that. And, um, you know, it's just, but yes, it's fascinating. Well, I mean, well, Ray Bradbury, I mean, it's really interesting, like with Ray, where, you know, Fahrenheit 451 is an astonishing, astonishingly predictive book. Yeah. He has wall screen TVs, he's got, he's got something he calls a seashell, which is a phone that you basically put in your ear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's you been a while well since he, I've read
0: that, but I remember that, yeah.
1: Yeah, but he was an ama- amazing in terms of his, uh, his ability to foresee those kind of things. But, but Star Trek, of course, had an enormous impact on the future we're living, which is mm-hmm. the, from, the, from the communicator. And I often call myself on a tricorder because it actually does much more like what the tricorder did. It had you because you can access the world's knowledge through it. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's the future, it's really interesting because the real world is always a mixture of the utopian and the dystopian. You know, it's like we get the really bad shit they predicted, like, you know, ruining the planet with global warming and things like that. And then you also get the incredible and incredibly cool stuff like you can ask your computer anything. You can go on Google and ask anything. And usually the answer will be pretty close to accurate. There's inaccuracies all over the Internet, of course, but but there's also enormous. I mean, when I was a kid. Um, my stepfather brought, bought me um, the Encyclopedia Britannica in 1965. And we had this wall of these heavy books. I don't have those anymore because you don't need them anymore. Yeah, you know? Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah, you know, now, I remember so. that was like a
0: big purchase buying an yes. encyclopedia, a whole stack yes. of encyclopedias. My, my parents yes. had one.
1: Now kids, now kids don't even know what they are. I'm sure, you know, and uh, you know, but uh, it's it's fascinating. Now, by the way, before I forget, I do want to tell you the the answers with Joe that I want you to do if you haven't already done it. Okay? okay, this is this is what I'm curious about. Okay, so we all know from the astronauts spending their long-term stays up in space a year or more that the effect of zero g is very bad on the human body in right. many many ways, yeah. long-term, and and in science fiction, of course, for decades since 19 the first time i became aware, aware of it was in 68 was 2001 and pretty much every science fiction thing since then has you know centrifugal force mm-hmm. you know space like like the martian is a great example of that mm-hmm. right with that spaceship they had and i know that they've done experiments with that but why haven't why hasn't why haven't any of the space going cultures designed a centrifugal of uh, a, a working centrifugal um platform in space or, you know, or, or for missions to Mars or the outer planets, you know, yeah. why, and I know that there's the Coriolis effect and you have to have thing. It's, it's an engineering challenge, but I'm surprised because that would make, that would totally diminish those, those negative physical effects if mm. they had something like that. And I don't know why it's not, not more actively being pursued in the real world.
0: Uh, I feel like I did a video on that at some point. Yeah, um, yes. it was sort of talking about the and or not anti gravity, but official uh, right. gravity. Yeah, um, and I'd, I'd have to refer back to it. I've it, I've had so many videos that I've I've at I'm at the point now where <laughs> like I it has happened multiple times that I've yes. started to do a video. And in researching it, I found an yeah. old video that I made about it and had totally forgotten about.
1: Right. That's right. You're your oh. own Mobius. You're, you're a Mobius strip in your own life. Yes, <laughs> That's exactly. one way of looking yes. at
0: it. Yeah. yeah. I'm, just yeah, eating yeah, yeah. My, I'm eating my own tail. That's um, right. <laughs> but uh I'd have to go back and look at it and see what the conclusion yeah. was on that. Because, but, because uh, I
1: have I have my I have my guesses why they haven't done it, which is because it's very difficult, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, there I saw a video where it said like, okay, here's two starships, Elon Musk starships, and as they go on in space they Heather. they have a yeah, and then they yeah. start spinning. But you know, I, I can see the, the hazards of that, but it's just curious, you know. Yeah, so I think, I
0: think it's just kind of like if, if they can get the the workout equipment on there and stuff and let them like yeah. strengthen their bones, like maybe that's enough and has fewer of the perils of the whole spinning thing. Yeah. They, they still haven't done a whole lot of like construction in space. Yes. And that's something yes. I find interesting on the horizon that they're gonna yes. start like actually yes. building big you know, mega projects in space. Yeah. And,
1: stuff. and and maybe also one of the problems has been that you can't test a centrifugal system on Earth because that's yeah. unlike unlike having your you know the spacesuit go down into the water and that's sort of similar kind and they can practice being in the spacesuit in a in a non breathable, you know, atmosphere on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think that might be also part of the problem, but, you know, but again, I was just, it was just a curiosity, you know, so, uh, yeah. so I thought who better to, to, to know the answer than you.
0: I'll swing back <laughs> around to it. I mean, yeah. um, yeah, it's something I hadn't really looked into in a while. It's fascinating. And, uh, yeah. you
1: know, but I, I, but it's also so cool. I mean, I've gotten a couple of tours <laughs> of SpaceX. I've, you know, and SpaceX has been very good to, I mean, they're, they're amazing to, when you go to the plant and, uh, and, you know, it's just, it's just fun. The convergence of the sciences, and science fiction is really, really, really cool.
0: Um, no, I do, I do find it uh, a couple of things interesting. One is how, kind of going back again to how they try to predict the future in the past, but um, yeah, I love looking at their visions of today or even the future because it's really more of a reflection of what is going on there. Like anything in the '50s yes. is all atomic age; <laughs> everything mm-hmm. is run by you know atoms and stuff. <laughs> Um, yes. And there, w- there was one that went way back to like 1900s. And there was like some French guy that had done all these drawings of what they thought the world would be like in the years yes. 2000. And they were like people riding sky whales and stuff. It's yes. like, what? <laughs> Where did that come yes. from? Um, I know. But airships back in the turn of the century, I, yeah. I've become fascinated by airships since I did a video yes. on them, and I still think yeah. that uh, they're really cool. And, and yeah, people seeing those in the sky for the first time, it must have just been mind blowing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I I I, I
1: knew. I like I had friends who were uh, in the 50, in the 30s and so forth and did see the, the Hindenburg and so forth and it was mm-hmm. astonishing. I mean the Hindenburg really put paid to airships, it's a shame because yeah. they were actually extremely safe compared to a lot of other modes of transportation. It was just so such a an amazingly spectacular yeah. disaster, you know. And by the way, in, in terms of technology, here's another thing we don't quite have yet, which is you know air cars. This is Blade Runner, of course, the yeah. spinner, yeah. you know, and uh, I that's a flying car. Uh, yes, I want one of those. But um, but but you know the other thing we never talk about is if we had flying cars, can you imagine the chaos of people yes. flying these things? Considering what they what they just do with regular cars, yeah. you know. So,
0: well, there's a lot knows. of people working on personal automated drones. Yes. Um, yes. Th- I, I think it's the, the, um, the loudness of that that bothers me the most. Like if you had those buzzing overhead all, all the yeah. time.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, again, it's, there's always the downside and the, and the upside, you know, one, one thing also you, when you were talking about the visualization of the future, um, one person I, I I wanted to mention was Ron Cobb. Ron Cobb was an artist who was a designer in film. He designed total recall. He designed a lot of the, the human stuff in alien, the ships and so forth. And I met him when I was 16, I was at a party uh, to launch this alternative newspaper uh, and he was a political cartoonist. And I met him and I knew of his work. And he took me back to his place that night and he showed me 10 concept paintings, paintings he'd just been hired to do for a friend of his to help sell a movie. And they were all along the, the baseboard. And they weren't even in, in frames, these 10 gorgeous oil paintings. Mm-hmm. And um, those were the, the, the paintings that sold the movie Alien. And, uh, oh. so that was and then he was brought aboard alien and designed the dropship in aliens and so forth and uh, but I mean these like where you go from the you know guys like Chesley Bonestell in the 50s 50s to Ed M. Schwiller in the 50s and 60s to Ron Cobb you know the, these guys who visualize the future, there's a lot of that stuff that then becomes the design aesthetic mm-hmm. of the real life objects that we mm-hmm. then have. you know it's fascinating I remember there was this terrible movie that Heinlein wrote um Called Project Moonbase. Hey, they rewrote him and screwed it up. But at one point, a guy picks up the phone, and the receiver is wireless. It's got little antenna coming out, and the base part is on the desk. And he's walking around with a handset with nothing attached to it. And you know, again, that's like okay, that's not bad. That's a pretty good good prediction. They nailed that. You know, so you know, it's, <laughs> it's it's fascinating. And, well, it's, uh, yeah.
0: it's it's funny how it goes both ways too. Because um how many times have we or has science fiction been used to inspire what's going on now like how many times have people looked at something that was in star trek and been like why can't we have that yes it's kind of like figure out you know how how you how you get there um i think that's interesting and uh, sorry i'm just kind of like making random references today no
1: it's no no but i agree i agree and it's fascinating because again um you know it's fascinating because until the 60s science fiction did not have a huge Influence on major culture, okay, and then all of a sudden, Star Trek, two thousand one, all those shows blew up, and then with Spielberg and Lucas, it became the dominant art form in a big way. And Arthur C. Clarke and all these guys suddenly became, well, Frank Herbert, they become multimillionaires, and and then it becomes. I mean, you know, it was no longer a niche thing; it became the the, the major culture, the popular culture, and. Uh, it's been fascinating in that way. And, and again, you know, there's all these strange and interesting, um, you know, uh, ways that you walk down the street and you see, Oh, well, that's, that's referencing Star Trek. That's refer- referencing Star Wars. And you, know, you can make pop culture references that people get, you know, and mm. your baby Yoda, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, years ago, oh, I came dude. up with an episode of I came up with an episode of DS, Deep Space Nine called uh, Far Beyond the Stars, in which all the char- you the character you see the characters back in the fifties as science fiction writers. And uh, the reason I wanted to show the world of the of the science fiction writers of the fifties was to say we wouldn't have Star Trek, we wouldn't have Star Wars if not for the guys who were writing for a penny a word, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, Astounding Stories and Galaxy and all of that. And I wanted to pay pay homage. that world that led to you know all the things that have come since and uh you know it's it's fascinating and i I, like you i love those those retro presentations whether it's from the 39 world's fair you know the futurama all that stuff the norman belgetti's diorama of what the future would look like you know or the movie things to come 1936 you know amazing stuff and uh you know i mean it's 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 pretty pretty fascinating and and but the the fun part also is you know, now we're looking at Elon Musk colonizing Mars. Will he succeed? I don't know I hope so it's going to be see the thing about Mars is it's going to be harder to set up a, a viable community there than anywhere on earth. The closest oh, yeah. analogy is if you combined like the the Antarctic mm-hmm. with living underwater you know yeah. permanently yeah. Yeah. and and even that's not as bad as Mars yeah. will actually be mm-hmm. you know but but I think people will do it. People are very tenacious. they're like they're like, they're like human cockroaches. You know you, you can put them anywhere, and they'll find some way to make it work. And uh, <laughs> you know but but also, I'm fascinated also by the the dovetailing of physics and quantum mechanics, you know, like you know, um Einstein couldn't nail that down the unified field theory, but but now we're getting more and more sort of into that interesting zone between the two. And quantum entanglement is very, very interesting, you know. And yeah. you know, so it's just like science, the more we open those boxes, the more mysterious the universe becomes. It's fascinating in that yeah. way.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh so I, I just, you know, it's like, you know, those guys that back in the 19th century who thought we'd run out of things to invent, you know. <laughs> you know, they wanted <laughs> to close the patent office. And 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 that they were where were they wrong, you know. Yeah. So
0: yeah. yeah. Well, to kind of circle back around a little bit, um please. The um the the effect that media being like movies, TV and whatnot has had on yeah. culture is like Disney has ruined so much about history like so much of what we think of as history is what we were yes. taught as kids watching the, the old disney stuff yes um that was like completely skewed and and yes in a lot of ways and whatnot mm-hmm. like again random example um i just watched a video yesterday that was talking about how um how did pirates actually talk did they mm-hmm. actually say yar and shiver me timber <laughs> and stuff like that it turns out it really just came back to the original treasure island Yes. And, and what, I forget the name of the actor, but whoever played Long John Silver in that. Robert like he Newton. Just, Robert, Robert Newton. Newton. There you go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. so he just kind of like put on this exaggerated Cornwall accent <laughs> and, and started making up these little gestures and stuff. And now it's like, that, that is how pirates talked in our minds, yes. you know? And and th- that's just one example of a million of just little things that, that have come out in movies and stuff that just completely reshaped how we thought about things. And I think science yes. fiction, sort of again, circling back to like when you're growing up and you see that other people are able to do things, it sort of implants some Something in your head of, yes. the future could be like this this could yes. be a thing yes we could do this and then it yes. kind of shapes what we're actually capable of doing yes it's fascinating so it's, it's really interesting yeah no
1: it's, it's it's wonderful and uh i mean it's funny because my brother steve who's younger than me he and his, his wife watched 2001 a space odyssey for the first time uh a few years ago and they hated it they thought they said oh my god it's so boring it's so slow and what he didn't understand was that when when 2001 came out in 1968 we thought that movie was a postcard from the future we were going to have mm. we thought that was showing us exactly we thought there'd be a the space station just like that one we thought people would be going to the moon you know etc it was it was you know and and again it, we 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 were disappointed in those predictions because we didn't get them. You know, we still don't have computers who, who actively kill us, but, you know, <laughs> but that's just <laughs> right around the corner. <laughs> that's right around the corner.
0: <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, you were talking earlier about how, uh, I guess there, there, you said one hour of TV can change somebody's life. Yes. And I, I completely agree with that. I mean, yes. like, I've had people tell me that a video of mine change them in some way like you never yes. really know what ripples you're creating when you do this kind exactly. of stuff which i think is yes so yeah i would love to hear an example of from you of something that um similar thing something that changed your yes. life from watching it and something that maybe you have done yes that somebody else has told you has changed their life
1: i can answer both those things go uh when i was a kid as i mentioned i was recording star trek on real field tape in case it never aired again because it was so astonishingly revolutionary week after week after week Mm. and the one that really kind of you know took my head off and put it back on in a different way and made me weird from then on was um (laughs) city on the edge of forever written by harlan ellison who became a dear friend and mentor and uh harlan and in that episode uh the crew of the enterprise or Kirk, spock mccoy you know go back in time to the 30s and Kirk falls in love with this woman named Edith Keeler, who runs Soup Kitchen, and, and it's played by Joan Collins, and she's really good in it. And um, he falls in love with her, but then in order to set the time stream straight, he, she has to die. Mm. And so every TV show I'd ever seen before that, and again, this, this aired when I was 10, um, every show I'd ever seen before that, the hero saved the girl. It was just an, a, a given. And in this episode, the hero literally has to throw her under a truck. And, and what that taught me was that in your life, in your real life, there will be times when you, you have to do what's right and it'll break your heart, but you still have to do it because it's what's right. Mm -hmm. And that was a major, major lesson. And so that's the one that really, really impressed on me and Harlan later when I heard Harlan being interviewed and so forth, he would say, you know, you must not waste your audience's time. You must give the best of yourself in everything you do because, you know, millions of people are spending an hour with you and you have to make it count. So, okay, so that was, you know, the other. But the, the thing I learned in my own career was sometimes I'll write things that are like that I know are meaningful, hugely meaningful, and that will affect people. But sometimes it's stuff that I might not have thought was weighty and it'll have a huge effect on someone else. And the example of that was. As I mentioned, I learned my craft writing animation, and I never really wanted to be an animation writer particularly, but that's how I broke in. And I I brought my A-game to it. I bring my A-game to everything I do. (laughs) And uh, But years later, when I was, you know, 20 years later, when I was writing live action and all that stuff, I got a letter from someone, and they said, "Um, you wrote my favorite He-Man episode, uh, Curse of the Monster, which was originally called Curse Curse of the Monster God, but they wouldn't let me use the word God in a title. Uh, Curse the Monster, and can I send you a couple of screen grabs uh, for you to sign? So I said, sure, you bet. So, I, I, so I, uh, he mailed me the screen grabs, and he included a letter. And uh, in the letter, he said, um, you know, when I was a kid, my dad went to a Halloween party, and he was murdered. And that episode of He-Man kept me going through my childhood. And and now I'm married and I have a happy life and I have kids and all of that. And I thought, my God, something that I wrote that was just kind of like a, a week's work for me mm-hmm. um, was something that this, this kid whose dad was murdered could hold on to for whatever reason. yeah. And yeah. So, he, so that was meaningful to him and it helped him get to a, a good adulthood. So you never know what you do, how the, the mm-hmm. ripple effect is going to go. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, you, for instance, you're doing you know, your, your wonderful, wonderful pieces. And, and I subscribe to them and then I think, gee, I'd like to have a conversation with this guy. And so I, (laughs) I reach out to you and here we are, you know, and and for me, it's a thrill. I mean, I'm uh, sincerely, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's just great, but you never know what the effect is going to be. That's why you have to come from your heart. Mm -hmm. See, this is the one thing that's great about the internet. uh, And I know you have to go do, you know, the, 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 the save a life or whatever, you know, you do, (laughs) but um, there's
0: somebody who needs CPR right over there. I need to,
1: But the one big difference about the internet that I love from back when, see, back when I started writing for TV, you'd write um, a television show and it would be a one-way conversation. Mm. It would go out to the millions Mm. of people and you might get a fan letter or you might meet someone at a convention, but that'd be about it. But now it's a total two-way conversation ongoingly. The more you let them into your process and into your Mm. world, the better. And authenticity counts they can tell who's full of shit and who's yeah. real, who's coming from the heart. And and because I'm consistent in my life, in my art, you know, in all of this stuff, that's how I've been able to raise $3 million from my fans because they know that that when I say something, I mean it. And, uh, you know, so, and when um, when I started Mr. Sci-Fi channel on YouTube, you know, it was like my friend, Glenn Mazzaro, who ran Walking Dead, uh, he said, I was having lunch with him and he said, you know, so much about science fiction, you just have your own YouTube channel. And so I just started it and, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, and now I've, and now I've had millions of hits and, you know, closing in on a yeah. hundred thousand subscribers. And it's like, um, because I can just talk and I can put space command episodes on there and I can do whatever I want. Just like mm-hmm. you can, you can talk about any weird thing you want to talk about,
0: you know, and, uh, that's, that's the beauty of it, no matter how weird or unique or, or, specific you think the thing that you're into is there's yes. millions of people out there that are into the same thing
1: yes and, yes uh, and
0: they connect with that yeah
1: but but well also we recognize kindred spirits and you know the moment i saw your 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 work on answers with joe i thought this guy's someone i think i'm <laughs> you know i resonate with and uh and that made me very much eager to to meet you and you know via the wonders of the uh the uh, computer age you know
0: it's so me and my phone booth.
1: Yes, yes. My, my video uh, phone booth. Our video phones. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's wonderful. So, but um, so this has been a, this is a thrill for me. I gotta say that. No, I no, pre-
0: man. I, 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 we could just keep going because there's yeah. I, like I said, when you started talking about all the stuff you've done, I'm like, where do I even start? My God. I know. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, I have so many questions about how writers' rooms work, and like, there's got to be some crazy stories from the various sets that you've been on and stuff. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. We may it's have to like do it the- again. Well, I'll tell you one last thing in, in, in closing, which is when I was on Star Trek set when I was a kid, um, uh, my friend Fred Bronson took me. He was a college student when I was a kid. And we were both Star Trek fans. And he, you know, had an in with the studio. Um, at the end of shooting, well, two things. At the end of, they were shooting Turnabout and Truth, turn the last episode ever. And a, and a crew, a guy on the crew said, last show of the season. And Majel Barrett, under her breath, said, she played Nurse Chapel, she said, last show ever. And the irony is 30 or 40 years later, when I did the Star Trek episode with George Takei, I actually had her as the computer voice on the Enterprise, which may have been the last thing she ever did for Star Trek. She died not long after. Uh. So she was... She couldn't predict that her her future, you know. Uh. And but the other thing was at the end, Fred and I thought, well, let's go in and say hello to William Shatner. And so Fred Mm -hmm. walked in ahead of me and Shatner was his head was over the sink and he had his toupee off. He started yelling, get out, get out of this dressing room. And a security guard hustled us off (laughs) unceremoniously. And so uh, so one of the greatest days of my life had that as its as its coda. But uh, you know, so so how the mighty are fallen. You get but, to see uh, the
0: chat without his, his yeah. Phone.
1: And now he's in space. Now he's shot into space yeah, by. For about
0: Fifteen minutes he was, yeah. Yeah,
1: and the other thing you learned from that moment, by the way, is Jeff Bezos should never wear a cowboy hat.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that was about, other than the <laughs> fact that he was in West Texas when he did it. But it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, if you'll stick around for just a second, I did want to like run a few things by you, but uh, yeah. so just kind of wrap right. up. People can find you on Mr. Sci-Fi on YouTube. Yes. Yes. Um, where can they go for space command like where like specifically? they can
1: watch they can watch the first few hours of space command on Mr. Sci-Fi it's free okay. and uh they can subscribe and I I talk about every aspect of science fiction it's really fun and uh and then also we're uh you know we regularly have you know, we have a Space Command store that you can link to through Mr. Sci-Fi, and you, mm-hmm. you know we're going to be releasing the, the first two hours on DVD and Blu-ray with like all these cool extras. So, sure. yeah, yeah, I'm an open book.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking of books, you have the the one coming yeah. out it's in April, right?
1: Yeah, and so it'll it'll post for pre-orders probably in you know later this month on Amazon and okay. everywhere good books are sold. So, cool. it's it's a fun book.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate your time, man. This has been great. Thanks. I've loved it. All right, big thanks to Mark Scott Zickrey for chatting with me and for all of his kind support of my channel. Um, I have trouble considering myself to be a peer of somebody that accomplished, but he certainly made me feel that way, and I do appreciate it. Um, go check out his channel, Mr. Sci Fi, and throw some love his way. And check out Space Command. If you love the old Star Trek Next Generation episodes, this will feel like a nice little throwback. This podcast was produced by Kimmy Britt, edited by Bray Brown. I'm Joe Scott. You can find me at all the places online at Answers with Joe and obviously on YouTube. Thanks for listening and please help spread the word about this podcast because we're still in the early days. We could use all the, all the promotion we can get. So also feedback is always welcome as well. So, all right. Thanks again. You guys go out there now and start some conversations of your own. Have a good one.